0: can entrepreneurship solve the world's problems? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Michael Strong. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Michael Strong. Michael was educated at Harvard, St. John's College and the University of Chicago, the latter of which where he was a doctoral student working on a dissertation, Ideas and Culture as Human Capital. He has created several high-performance private and charter schools, including a school that was named the 36th Best Public School on the Washington Post's Challenge Index. Michael is currently the CEO and Chief Visionary Officer of Radical Social Entrepreneurs, the nonprofit organization he co-founded with John Mackey. He's the author of the book, Be the Solution, How Entrepreneurship and Conscious Capitalism Can Solve All the World's Problems, and it will form the basis of much of our conversation today. Michael? Welcome to The Curious Task.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted to be on the show, and I love the title of your show.
0: Great. It's off to a great start, and we're delighted to have you. So, so Michael, we we base each episode on a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. So our question today is, can entrepreneurship solve the world's problems? And of course, the world has a lot of problems, and we won't be able to cover them all in in this one episode or cover your entire book in this chat. But we'll make some stops at some main points, I think. Uh, But before we jump right into that, I first want to actually start by asking you a couple of context questions and explore why this is such an important topic to you in general. One thing I really like about the beginning of your book, actually, is, is you cover exactly that, why you care about this. And one sentence stuck out to me in the book where you said, a dispirited person is a loss to the world's balance sheet of global goodness. Can can you just talk a bit about that and what you were thinking there? That really stuck out to me. Absolutely. Well,
1: for one, kind of as a background sort of uh, thing. Most people, I would say, are addicted to the news and political news in particular. And I think if one is focused on political news, it's easy to become disillusioned. If one believes the only way that one can make a difference in the world is by means of politics, it's a pretty discouraging slog most of the time. On the other hand, I live in a subculture of entrepreneurs, both social entrepreneurs and you know, purpose-driven for-profit entrepreneurs, and pretty much all of those people are feeling confident, happy, motivated, empowered. And you know, it, it's a tragedy to me that perhaps, you know, I don't know the percentage, but a tiny percentage of the world is engaged in this entrepreneurial ecosystem in which they feel empowered to make a positive difference to the world. And most people either feel passive in their jobs, they feel passive in their schooling, they feel passive and overwhelmed in the face of political challenges. And so, for me, uh, if we had seven billion people feeling empowered to make a difference through entrepreneurial action, as opposed to maybe I don't know a few hundred thousand, maybe a few million, um, that you know the, the scale of human capacity that's underutilized is absolutely mind-boggling. So you know. Yeah, whenever I see social science or whatever saying, oh, this problem, that problem in the future, well, given current trends, yes, this problem, that problem in the future. But if instead of having 99% of our population being you know, more or less passive and depressed, if we had 99% feeling empowered and action oriented, the, the difference is absolutely amazing. So that that's the simple versions. Hey, why why hang over there and be depressed and powerless? I mean, come over here and make a big difference and feel empowered. It's like a no brainer for me.
0: So I, and as you're sort of saying there, this isn't just necessarily about a dispirited person, whether whether they're in a, let's let's say, a less wealthy society or, or even the wealthiest society, like someone could be dispirited, as you said, just, just at their job, going in every day, not feeling like they're making a difference. So they may be making a difference in their own life, of course, bringing in some income, taking care of their family, whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, it's sort of that global goodness part that you're interested in. How is someone making an impact on their own life and whether they intend to or not the the, the life of others?
1: Well, exactly. I, I'm a great believer in human happiness and flourishing. I believe that we have the wherewithal right now to help 7 billion going on 8 billion people be happy and flourishing. And so my vision of entrepreneurial change is that I want all of us every day to be engaged in entrepreneurial action that increases the um, overall amount of happiness and well-being everywhere. And so I I think it's, you know, there's some people, you know, there's some Randians who have a narrow definition of selfishness. I'm all about, I enjoy doing good for people. I think most people love having a positive impact in the world. And so, uh, and most people, you know, love going from a state of misery to a state of well-being. So, you know, we've got literally billions of uh, win-win transactions that are not taking place. And I want to increase the number of, win-win transactions so that you can win by being an entrepreneur who's doing good and your customers or other clients can win by receiving good. What's not to like?
0: Right. And and one thing you say a little later on in the book, but I like, to, I like to myself to connect it back to the first thing we just talked about, which is on, on top of the discussion about the balance sheet of global goodness, um, you also mentioned that in general, I guess you advise the reader really that it'd be a better idea to start taking a longer term view on life if you can, that a lot of people are focused very much in the short run, very much with the, with, with whether it's short run personal gain in, in the sense of perhaps material or, or even just like income or anything like that. But when you you're encouraging the reader, it seems that when to think of the quote world's problems, we can't just think week by week, we have to think five years, 10 years, 15 years, perhaps even 100 years out. That's how you would kind of get yourself out of a a spirit of dispiritedness, if you will. If you really want to start thinking about the problems, we have to take a longer term point of view.
1: Absolutely. And there are kind of two sides to that. One is, um, I'm a great believer, you know, I'm a great fan of, um, you know, classical Greek thought. And part of that is Aristotle and Eudaimonia, that a virtuous life is a well-lived life. And ultimately, well-being is based on doing the right thing and disciplining one's uh, passions. And that's kind of old-fashioned, but I think it's incredibly valid, not just in Greek culture. I think in traditional cultures around the world, one develops a sense of discipline so that one can uh, be a uh, noble or heroic uh, uh, person within one's culture. And the other thing is that if one takes a lifelong view of human achievement, then It's not about what am I going to do this weekend or what party am I going to go to or what protest or, you know, whatever. It's about am I actually doing something meaningful in the long run? And the fact is um, difficult challenges being solved by entrepreneurial activity take a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, uh, an exercise, education entrepreneurship is one of my main foci. And one of the things I did in, uh, as an exercise for my students was ask them what the most important news of the week was. And we discussed how most important would longest term impact on most people. And pretty soon, most of them realized that almost all news is ephemeral. It really doesn't matter. Mm. But something like uh, the rise of uh, lab-grown meat and various uh, meat alternatives uh, would have a huge impact. Or to take a different uh, case, material science. Most people don't realize how incredible material science is. Huge impact. I mean, the cryptocurrency world um, started out tiny, but I think cryptocurrencies are just in the beginning of uh, transforming uh, the options for global finance uh, and individual, you know, liberty uh, by based on having min- multiple options uh, for how to use different kinds of currencies. So all of these things, if you look decade by decade extraordinary progress if you look weekend by weekend it's depressing so right. of this is both internally kind of the internal discipline to commit oneself to long-term goals based on not giving in to impulses all the time but then also taking a long-term perspective because in the long term things are getting a lot better for most of humanity most of the time
0: and if we can accelerate that. Um, we should before i get into some more specific points about entrepreneurship in, in general i still have one more point on sort of the mindset that you're establishing at the beginning of the book one thing another thing i really like that you wrote was you just you discussed how when you start putting yourself into the entrepreneurial mentality or understanding entrepreneurs e- either way we have to Escape the sort of partisan discussion. We have to escape partisanship when we're talking about entrepreneurship, and, and that was something that I really liked at the beginning of your book. Again, you said, you ultimately made the point. I don't think in so many words, but you ultimately made the point that look, like th- this is this is a topic for everybody. Entrepreneurship, right? This isn't a Republican thing. It's not a Democrat thing. It's not a something that we can tie directly to whatever your head political issue of the day is you want people to think globally when it comes to entrepreneurship, not party by party, policy by policy, it seems.
1: Absolutely. And a lot of this is I try to, I mean, do we want poor people to have better lives? I mean, that shouldn't be a partisan issue. Mm-hmm. Should we want um, inner city children to have a better education? That shouldn't be a partisan issue. You know, do we want people to uh, be happier, more empowered and less depressed? That shouldn't be a partisan issue. But I, you know, again, one of the reasons I try to pull people away from politics and the news is that one gets into a mindset where, I mean, I, work, I worked in DC one summer and everything is urgent. Just everything is urgent. We always have to be fighting, 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 fighting. fighting. And it's not healthy. And I would say digital media has uh, made that a hundred times worse, a thousand times worse. And so I think we have to pull back and think, okay, whatever all of these people engaged in uh, politics are doing, Am I actually, you know, again, in education, am I making lives better for children now and in the future in terms of global poverty? Am I going to be empowering people so that they'll have better lives five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, and so forth and so on. I want people to think um, this is all about, and you know, you can still occasionally get into policy disputes, or oh, I think this policy, that policy. But I think if we're aligned on the goal, then um, the Partisan political disputes, many of which are about, you know, personality, I mean, right? The kind of non uh, nonstop trivia about Trump bores the hell out of me. Uh, you know, it's just, let's, let's do something constructive. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's getting out of that mindset. It's an addiction and media companies, you know, they make money through clickbait headlines. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are partisans, both political and nonprofit that, uh, raise money by means of sensationalist headlines. I read once that, uh, a fundraising letter from a green nonprofit would bring in three times as much money if they threw the cokes under the bus as if they didn't. Wow! So when you see that, yeah, people are making money by, uh, attacking other people like, well, do I really want to be focused on
0: attacking other people all the time? Is that really making things better for people? I don't think so. That's an excellent point. And now shifting gears a little bit more into some of the the finer parts of of entrepreneurism specifically a toolkit you talk about in the book, which I thought was very interesting too. So you you said more specifically in this chapter to for people to escape poverty, but but in general, it seems that for entrepreneurship to work, uh, you you said that people need access to what you call like the entrepreneur's toolkit, and and you you define these things by saying. That they're in general, these this is one secure property rights, two a rule of law, and three ec- economically the, the same things that people in, enjoy in developed countries. That would be for more poorer countries if we're talking about. Let, let's start with with secure property rights. And again, this this isn't a, a philosophical episode about property rights itself, but I still want to get into your mentality as as to why like that that's right off the bat something that you think is important as part of the entrepreneurial toolkit. Sure. Well,
1: first, I want to say I'm delighted that you focused in on that entrepreneurial toolkit because I I do think it's important. And I'm gonna give a high-level version before going back down into the sure. property rights piece. But um, you know, in the debates, say over economic development, there are all endless debates about you know free trade and economic freedom and deregulation and so forth. And I think it obscures something that when one looks at concretely, is not very controversial. And of course, my wife Magat Wade is an entrepreneur from Senegal, so she knows this concretely. That is, um, the analogy I make is an artist. You know, In order for an artist to create, an artist needs to take traditional painting, you know, a paintbrush and a canvas and brush brushes, you know, and paints and so forth. There's things you need, it's a toolkit. Um, you can imagine, a, uh, you know, a home builder's toolkit. You know, people who create and build things need a toolkit. So property rights, if one does not have secure property rights, if uh, at any point your property rights, be it to um you know money in the bank or a piece of land or rights to a uh, electromagnetic spectrum you know there are diverse forms of property rights uh, rights to say a certain uh, amount of water water rights you know i'm very interested in diverse water rights but if one does not have confidence and security in whatever bundle of rights property rights one has it's hard to create at some point it becomes impossible to create So insecurity and uncertainty regarding property rights prevents the creation because whether one's building, you know, a school or a crypto company or a house or a factory, you know, an entrepreneur needs to plan three to five years in advance or more. And in order for an entrepreneur to plan, um, will I have this piece of land in five years? If the land could, you know, disappear month by month, if your control over the land might disappear month by month, no way are you going to put a factory in there. That's insane. You know and, and so i think um people on the left uh, feel often very powerfully about the importance of creativity in the arts and the intellectual domains um but what they don't realize is that entrepreneurship at its best is fundamentally about creativity and just as an artist needs you know her paints uh, or her um you know watercolors or whatever uh, an entrepreneur needs property rights. And without that, there's
0: nothing. And, and back to our short-term, long-term discussion, I guess, right? It, and of course, in the short-term, not having secure property rights, I think anyone listening can imagine what kind of trouble that would cause. But of course, it, as you were sort of alluding to there, it affects your long-term view on not only the world and your property, but life itself, right? If you can't have your property and what you own and, and feel like there's sort of a little corner of the world that you can own and create, and um, that will affect what you feel you can do not only for yourself, but for other people in the long term as well. If you think that tomorrow is not going to look like today by any means, how can you think 10 years out in terms of building a business or just selling your art, whatever it may be, right?
1: Big, big time. There's actually a lot of interesting research on this. There was a study. I'm a big fan of Fernando de Soto um, and his uh, urgent campaign to provide secure property rights for the global poor. At one point, uh, de Soto influenced people were looking at um, squatters in an area, I really either in Brazil or Argentina. And some of the squatters had received formal title from the previous landowners and some had not, kind of a board pattern, so that there was sort of a, a randomized experiment uh, through the fact that some people received secure property rights and some did not. And after, say, five years of having the property rights, the land, and these are, you know, the urban poor, um, the ones who had secure property rights were more confident, more empowered, more prosperous, more successful. Um, the ones that did not were disempowered, depressed. And this is not a surprise. You know, Imagine being a squatter where your home could be um, bulldozed any, any day. And how, how can you build a life with that? Because once you own a place, yeah, you can start building up uh, a place. People are incredibly motivated when they know they have the security they need to build a future for themselves and their families. But again, this should be obvious, um, but it took DeSoto to really call attention to this and we need to bring it to the forefront of everyone's attention over and over again.
0: And so that was the first part of the entrepreneurial toolkit, tool as we said, secure property rights. And then, then you pivot over in the book to talking about rule of law. Exactly. So rule of law, of course, is is closely related in many ways.
1: If one could be arbitrarily arrested, prosecuted, um, threatened with fines at any time, then similarly, one cannot predict for the future. So, you know, I certainly believe that um, you know, we should attempt to be law abiding. There's a famous book called Three Felonies a Day that makes the case that most business people in the United States are probably committed, committing three bis- three felonies a day. That mm. is, law has become so complex, and there's so many different activities that have been criminalized that it's almost impossible not to you know, commit inadvertent crimes. And, and this is even worse, believe it or not, even worse in developing countries where the tax laws are extremely convoluted. You know, again, Magat in Senegal finds that when she goes to government bureaucrats to act up, ask them how to comply with tax and regulatory requirements, very often the government has no idea, which may sound insane for people who think the government is functional. This may be, sound insane, but the fact is, most countries just have laws that are gradual you know you can think of this as an archaeological dig where over decades more and more laws get passed and piled on bit by bit by bit by bit and it's gotten to the point in many places where um you know arbitrary arrest can happen simply because of ignorance of the law and it's a different sort of thing but um you know libertarians often talk like to talk about how Passing a law is like putting a gun to a person's head. So, you know, Eric Garner was famously choked to death for selling cigarettes. Right. You know, um, there's a different sort of case where I know of a case where uh, cops shot a teenager going to a keg party over the weekend because keg parties were illegal. The cops came in for a raid. She tried to drive away, and they shot her uh, in the back of the head as she was driving away. You know, just horrifying sort of thing. So you know, rule of law, um, some of this is no corruption, but again, a lot of corruption is due to way too many laws in in Africa. And it's, you know, I say Africa in some ways, you know, we can say Chicago, but in Africa, very often in order to get anything done, people have to pay off bureaucrats because the bureaucrats can withhold the, um, permit or whatever until they get paid off a certain amount. And because one is, it's easy to find ways in which one is out of compliance. Um, There's always this sort of way in which uh, bureaucrats can uh, play the role of almost a mafioso in terms of, hey, uh, you know, pay, pay me or else. It may sound outrageous and exaggerated, but I created a charter school in New Mexico where we had passed three building inspections And uh, about six weeks later, the local public schools losing revenue because per pupil expenditure went from the local public school to our school. Mm. So about six weeks into the school year, we had a building inspector from outside the region come in and tell us that we had to close the school on Monday because we were out of compliance. Um, And, you know, this would be 100 kids who instantly lose their school. Right. We managed to we had connections with the governor. We called the governor. He gave us time. But in one case, it was. The toilet roll holder was the wrong number of inches from the floor. And this hardly seems like the sort of thing where you're gonna shut down a school. Right. But, right. You know, people in the business world, they realize that um, the law is used in an arbitrary and capricious way all over the place. So rule of law should imply that there are simple, easily understood rules that are applied fairly and consistently. And so you have a predictable environment so that if you want to be a law abiding entrepreneur, you say, okay, these are my property rights. This is the legal framework I can build within these constraints. And as long as you know, you can build within these constraints, you can be as creative as you please, you know, and, um, you know, the fugue classical music the fugue this is what makes a fugue so if you want to create a fugue you do it within these constraints creativity within constraints is a well known phenomenon what you can't do is create when there are arbitrary capricious um constraints all over the place right. and you have no way of knowing if you'll be free to create so just like property rights allow for freedom to create consistent clear simple rule of law framework applied fairly is absolutely essential for
0: creating. Right, exactly. We want, a, we want a framework for entrepreneurs to grow and not 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 a set of specific rules that they need to follow. And I think what you said there actually is a very interesting point that I think people gloss over a little too much, like when it comes to sort of, again, the, the red tape and the barriers to, to entrepreneurs. I think when, when a lot of people think of things like building codes or health and safety regulations right off the bat, and this isn't correct in terms of a first instinct, people think, well, that's good that we have that stuff. We want people to be safe. But as you said, when you really start investigating the story a little more. This isn't about whether ceilings are going to collapse on people or if floors are stable. This is really stuff like, you know, where are your toilet paper rolls from the ground? Do you have enough towel racks? Is this the exact kind of paper towel you should be using? Uh, At that point, uh, unfortunately, I guess as well, there's um, another way to think about it is that uh, huge already established corporations can easily abide to this stuff and throw money at it. But if you think of a, a small team of people, two, three, four, five, even 10 people trying to just wade their way through all these regulations and just get started and add to that balance sheet of global goodness you were talking about. If, if instead of creating their software, doing whatever they got to do, they're, they're worried about toilet paper rolls. That, that's sort of a, a thing that we should all probably be concerned about, I would say. Well,
1: big time, and kind of emphasize your point there, I actually see most regulations as by the corporations, for the corporations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and designed to keep... Right. Employees. And so I think when people have uh, idealistic notion that regulations are passed in the public interest, they've not really looked into it. Um, I had a friend who worked on Wall Street once, and he said that basically, if somebody gets prosecuted, it's almost certain they're one of the good guys. <laughs> that, you know, we've had uh, Goldman Sachs top, top brass in the, every presidential administration for the last 30 years, Democrat or Republicans, but I like to say, and this goes back to the political thing, no matter if it's de- Democrats or Republicans winning, uh, Goldman Sachs wins. <laughs> right, that's you know the U.S. context, but I'm sure there's the equivalent in Canada. Oh yes. big finance is going to win all the time, and so you know we, we have to find ways to help the little guy, and much of that means uh,
0: simplifying um, access to business creation. The first two things we talked about could, of course, apply anywhere mostly. But one of the third things you talk about is sort of just the same economic freedom and, and even the subtle things that that people enjoy in developed countries that, that that needs to be applied. And we need to think more about that for developing countries. And I think this category probably has a lot of things unto itself. But even back to things like secure property rights and rule of law, I think a lot of us take for granted in the West that just part of all, our culture, and I, I use a bit of a flippant and funny example right now, is that if, if something goes wrong, we think, well, well I'll sue you. You, it's like, imagine if there was no civil court to take anyone to imagine if there was no structure to, to allow for, for sort of a, both the rule of law to be upheld and, and sort of even your your economic rights to be upheld. This is what some people in developing countries are dealing with. So it's, it's not enough just to say these people need to be, uh, you know, pull up their bootstraps or whatever. They also need a framework, as we were saying, to, to flourish. In. And a lot of people just simply don't have that, that framework.
1: And they're both cultural and legal elements of this. Um, I, I would say for all of the faults of the United States. Um, it's very culturally free. It's a very free place for creating. That's why people from around the world come here to create. In many places, um, uh, there are kind of cultural norms against uh, independent free creation, and there are also legal rules that limit it to a dramatic extent. Um, you know, it's not just the United States. Uh, that there are certainly other places where there's a lot of freedom to create. Um, Northern Europe in general is very good for uh, on these measures, both culturally and legally. But uh, a big reason why the global poor are poor is a lack of property rights, rule of law, and economic freedom, or economic and cultural freedom. And so if we can create uh, places, you know, jurisdictions and uh, cultural islands where there's a lot more freedom to create, then we'll see entrepreneurs from around the world create the jobs and prosperity needed to move poor countries into middle-class countries. Just kind of a note on the cultural front, I've spoken around the world on entrepreneurship and very often to EO, entrepreneurship organizations. And what's interesting is that despite the cultural differences, say, between Russia and Guatemala and the Philippines, the entrepreneurship organizations feel very similar to me in terms of a let's do stuff, let's get stuff done kind of culture. And they tend to be you know, very concerned about excessive regulation, but not out of any any ideological perspective. It's really just we have these great projects that we want to create, and we are thwarted by too many obstacles. And so, you know, what people don't realize is that um, if you look at the Doing Business Index by the published by the World Bank, which measures how hard it is to do business in nations around the world, almost all African nations are in the bottom third, and um, this is a direct uh, factor in the ongoing poverty of Africa and my wife Magot speaks about this eloquently if we want Africa to become prosperous and I would assume we all want Africa to become prosperous we need to promote property rights rule of law and economic freedom in Africa and similarly in other countries you know uh, Bangladesh uh, has excessive, uh, regulation, lack of rule of law, and frail property rights. Uh, you, these correlations, the correlation between economic freedom, of course, the Fraser Institute of Canada f- publishes the fabulous Economic Freedom Index of in the World. Uh, the correlations between economic freedom and prosperity are strong. And So if we care about, uh, you know, I have a an article coming out uh, called Make Everybody Rich. Uh, using a title I stole from the poet Frederick Turner, where a lot of the world's problems will be solved if we simply make poor people rich. And we know how to do it. Um, and it's basically secure property rights, rule of law, and economic freedom. Um, why don't we make everybody rich?
0: And, um, and and another thing you did in this section of the book, uh, before we shift gears to, to some other areas here, is is that I actually stopped for a second and, and thought about this for a little while when, when you wrote it. But you kind of actually take this entrepreneurial toolkit and then start talking about other industries, and and I never thought of it this way too. But you have a very simple statement that says entrepreneurs in health, education, and community formation need the same freedom as those in technology fields, and and I think that's a really good point, right? Because I think a lot of us think of uh, ease ease of doing business, economic freedom. These are sort of like umbrella sort of categories or statements we can make about one country or the other. But if we zoom in our microscope a little more, we can really start looking at how different industries have some major advantages compared to other industries. And and when you do think of technology, of course, there's always exceptions here and there, but relatively speaking, this is a very free field. You know, two guys in blue jeans can get together in a basement and, and code the next big thing. Whereas in reality, in, tech, in sectors and in areas of life, which I hope we all agree are very important, as you said, health, education, and community formation, uh, this is where we tend to find the most regulation, it seems you're saying.
1: Exactly. And thank you again. You, you're, you've got great taste in terms of focusing on important points. <laughs> thank, Absolutely. Thank there are sometimes critiques of entrepreneurship and tech in particular because there is a perception that they're busy solving trivial problems, which is neither fair nor true. But insofar as there's some validity in it, it's precisely because... Um, You know, they have freedom to create. You can create whatever game you want to create. uh, Considerable freedom with respect to pornography. Considerable freedom with respect to uh, all sorts of online apps. But as soon as you start to build a building or build a school or create an innovation in healthcare, strangulation, absolutely strangulation of rules. And, you know, I've been in education for 35 years. And one of the things that I've become increasingly adamant about is that I want freedom from even the constraints that uh, state-sponsored accreditation or a state-approved accreditation for schooling provides. Um, just briefly on that point, you know, even private schools are pretty unregulated in much of the U.S., but if they want to be accredited by one of the regional accreditation agencies recognized by the U.S. government, so there's a government link there, they have to fit into certain school boxes. And the school boxes include, you know, this is what happens in grade six. This is what happens in grade seven. These are the subjects that are gonna be taught. You know, if I wanna coach a kid to be amazing and brilliant, um, I don't wanna be concerned about the standard default expectation of sixth grade. I wanna have a lot more freedom around that. And it may sound uh, small, plenty of smart people go through conventional schooling and do just fine. But all innovation happens at the margins. In every case, every innovation starts somewhere at the margin. And you start small with this uh, little case that nobody was paying attention to, and you grow it. To jump over to communities, um, you know, housing is incredibly regulated. Housing costs, now it's pretty mainstream that um, land use regulation is responsible for significant, I've seen estimates of 30 to 50% of the cost of housing in, uh, say, coastal cities like New York and San Francisco. Whereas Houston has the lowest cost housing of any major city in the U.S., and that's because it's the least regulated major city in the U.S. in terms of land use regulation. And so if we want low cost housing, um, we need to reduce land use regulation. Um, so I, I could go on and on and on in this vein, but absolutely, if we want to create better education and health and communities, then we need to provide the same uh, tabula rasa as much as possible for innovators or entrepreneurs in those domains as the, say, uh, innovators in the internet uh, activities have had.
0: And I, I actually think that's an excellent place to take a break. So we'll do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Michael Strong today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Peter Jaworski, Randy T. Simmons, and Rosa Pagliarello. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Michael Strong today. Michael, the, the first half of our conversation, I think, was was a very good uh, way for us to kind of paint sort of the the broader picture of our discussion here about, about entrepreneurship and, and and why it's important and and the kind of playing field and framework that entrepreneurs need. I'd like to to zoom in a little further on some of those some of that discussion we've had and also get to a few specific issues towards the end of our episode uh, about how entrepreneurs can help tho- those in in those areas. But before we get to that, I just want to stop uh, at at a, an interesting point here. Um J- John Mackey, the, the CEO of Whole Foods, one of your friends, he, he contributed a chapter to your book called uh, Creating a New Paradigm for Business. And and ultimately he starts with an interesting point that perhaps we need to put in context how we think of certain professions on the one hand and and business in general, and of course, by extension, entrepreneurs on the other hand. So th- for instance, uh, he summarizes this and sums it up, I think quite nicely, that you know, you can always do a psychological test with someone, right? You throw out the word like doctor," and someone might go, "Oh, they heal people. You throw out teachers, they educate people, and then you talk about an entrepreneur or business and they might get start getting conversations like oh they make a profit or right or maybe some other types of evil caricatures appear in people's heads so all that to say he ultimately makes the point that it's not just enough for us to do kind of what we did in the first half of the conversation, which is talk about how great entrepreneurship is. It's also to discuss amongst ourselves and and other people as well, l- listening to us, that this really does require a shift in mentality of what business and entrepreneurs can do, not just talk about it from an economic perspective, but also from a cultural perspective as well.
1: Yeah, lots to say here. Thank you. I'm tempted to kind of jump in at a pretty high theoretical level and say one of the books I wanted to write is Mises plus Maslow, um, because for me, uh, entrepreneurship and business is really about purpose, so, certainly for John as well. It's very much about purpose. And one can describe business as strictly uh, profit-seek- profit-seeking, profit-maximizing. seeking, um, profit In some ways, I think in doing so, one is giving in to the Marxist orientation, that it's uh, all about capitalism. And when they describe, when the Marxists talk about capitalism, they envision um, capital as this. Uh, evil force that is always seeking its aggrandizement. And as a consequence, many people understand um, business in this framework of always going to where the price signals lead them. And uh, the problem with that is, I think, especially when there are externalities involved, where there very frequently are, or where there are situations in which um, for whatever reasons, one cannot yet uh, internalize the profits from a valuable project. Uh, simply following the price signals may not lead to a betterment of humanity. I'm very interested in how to change the say, property rights um, and overall legal system so that we can align making the world a better place with profit-seeking. So there's nothing wrong with profit-seeking. But I see fundamentally, most entrepreneurs start with a sense of purpose. And as they grow their companies, then they're interested in maintaining a sense of purpose. And so uh, I, do, I do see a difference in mindset between entrepreneurial value creators. And so for me, what's the business of entrepreneurship? It's value creation. We are creating value. Um, and then we can have interesting philosophical disputes about what counts as value. But the goal is the creation of value. The goal is not the metric of profit per se. Um, there are many domains within the economy where um, there is alignment between value creation and profitability. And I would say uh, you know, a lot of advocates of markets point to those domains. And it may sound um, you know, small, but um, Hans Rosling has a great video on the importance of the washing machine. He makes the case that the washing machine has probably done more for women's liberation than uh, anything else. And so, you know, I, with this frame, think of, you know, the great washing machine manufacturers as great liberators of the human condition. Um, And I think we all, we in developed countries so much take uh, consumer goods for granted that we don't realize the nobility in creating washing machines. Um, But, you know, There are, I I do think there are certainly places in an economy where people can uh, earn a lot of profit by scamming others. Um, I think the financial industry, especially given government subsidies, um, created an opportunity for value destruction to be profitability. And so by focusing on the value creation piece, my goal is that we including people with different intellectual and moral perspectives, can have a constructive conversation about... Well, is this entrepreneurial or business activity creating value, not creating value, or destroying value? And if it's destroying value, what's going on there? Why why is the system not working properly? Um, and I'd like to see a lot more sophistication on behalf of those who are critical of business and markets in terms of how the legal system is very likely perverting the goal of value creation into value destruction. So a lot there, but I'll pause because I don't want to go off the theoretical deep end.
0: No, no, that's good, and I just want to add add to what you're saying there, actually, too. And I I think I should stop and actually make the point, especially for those who haven't read the book, as I have. That I guess it's important to also note that the book isn't just supposed to speak to uh, to people outside of, let's say, the entrepreneurial sphere or or people looking from the outside in. You're you're not just writing a book to tell people, hey, this is the way you should be thinking of entrepreneurs. Of course, this is also uh, geared, at least what I the way I what I pulled out of it, it's also geared toward people that are thinking of becoming an entrepreneur or thinking of entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurial activity more broadly so so you're not just doing all that to say you're not just encouraging people looking at entrepreneurs to think of them as the good guys you also clearly want entrepreneurs themselves to think of themselves as a group of people that are creating value for other groups of people whether that be the, their employees or or their customers you, you want the entrepreneurs themselves not to just think of what that what that profit margin looks like at the end of the day solely exactly and actually
1: just to expand on that a little bit in a different direction so, for basically 15, almost 20 years, I've had hundreds of people come to me with a basically a do gooder project and ask if they should structure as a, a you know nonprofit organization or for profit. And most of them, because their orientation is doing good, want to go nonprofit. But I explain that in most circumstances, for profit is a better structure because it's more aligned with scaling and uh, autonomy. If you're a nonprofit, you're stuck begging people for money all the time and nonprofits are not designed to scale. And you're always hobbled by a board, even if the board are, consists of very good people. And so, you know, part of my message to those who want to make a difference is in a positive way, in whatever way they regard as positive, is to consider how to structure what they're doing in a way that they can uh, create profitable revenue streams. And to give you, um, an interesting example, about oh, six, seven years ago, I met a woman who is a a doula, a full-service doula, where from the time a woman gets pregnant uh, to the time, you know, a few weeks postpartum, um, and she's an African-American doula. And uh, in the United States, preterm African-American births um, the are, are in a terrible state. Their uh, their uh, mother and infant mortality rates are extremely high for African-American women across all socioeconomic. Uh, demographics and um i encouraged her to become an entrepreneur and bit by bit she has grown she has now a small training program where she's trained 10 other um african-american doulas in her full service technology she's part of a, a nationwide network of such doulas and they're looking at ways to uh, increase the monetization of what they're doing by showing that their doula services outperform traditional medical doctors when it comes to an intervention um, reducing maternal and infant mortality rates for African American women. So that's, that's a case where um, initially there was a, pers- a rightly perceived need of an immense problem, but no sort of notion that this could be an entrepreneurial endeavor. It's not like at this point she's making lots of money at it, but by means of structuring it as an entrepreneur, um, she changed the way she thought about it, and that helped her to think about the mechanisms through which she might scale what she's doing. Um, and so I have conversations like this with people all the time where they want to solve some problem, they think I'm going to create a nonprofit, and I walk them through, okay, what's involved more nonprofit, what's involved for for profit. And if they really want to get the job done, probably 80% of the time they say, yeah, we need to do either a for-profit or hybrid for-profit non-profit.
0: To add on to that thought, when people think of business in general, and this is just, I'm not really sure either way about this, but I, just open question, you let me know if you think it's true. I find that some people uh, wrongly, and it's, it's no fault of their own, whether it's just through media and things they've absorbed or going through a public school education, quite frankly, the way they sort of think of the way the world is structured. Sometimes even the idea of business itself, quote unquote, feels too big to some people that they don't realize that really what that entrepreneurial spirit and what they can do through entrepreneurism is, is really just have them and a couple other people on a website and get going and start building a business. I think some people don't feel like they really can bridge that gap between, you know, themselves and maybe they're doing something they're doing as a side gig or whatever the case may be, and actually start building a business from the ground up, Even let alone the conversation of how to structure the business. I find some people have a hard time even putting themselves in that entrepreneurial mentality, again, through no fault of their own, just sort of the way a lot of people are trained to think of what quote unquote business is.
1: Well, absolutely. And I would even say to start with, um, I see a con- Conventional uh, K 12 education as 13 years of training, systematic training, and how to be very passive and how to be very dependent, Mm -hmm, how to mm -hmm. sit and do what you're told all day, every day, and uh, to regard others as capable of telling you what to do. Right. And that's that's one of my biggest complaints about conventional education. John Taylor Gatto, uh, twice named New York City Teacher of the Year, then New York State Teacher of the Year. Uh, talks about this very eloquently. So, before we get into the, I would say, bigotry against business, ignorance, ignorance and bigotry in business, uh, you know, perpetuated by the anti-capitalists. There's just this, you know, passivity that is drilled into people, um, and you know, to make this international. Again, my wife from Senegal. Um, The uneducated people in Senegal are actually very entrepreneurial, and there's a global diaspora of uneducated Senegalese, but the educated Senegalese uh, internalize the norms, I would say, of French academics and French bureaucrats, French socialists. So in many cases, the uneducated people there are more entrepreneurial than the educated people. Um, And then, yeah, going back to the business thing, one of the great things about the tech world is there have been these startup weekends where a group of 10, 20, 30, 40, tech people get together over a weekend and create something and that's so empowering occasionally these have resulted in successful companies whereas i think uh, not just k-12 but in university many people think okay i you know learn how to become uh an expert in something by means of college and then college allows me to go out and study this some more and maybe i'll be a researcher or a bureaucrat and you know it's it's one that it takes for granted that when we'll go into a a state, static system, whether it's large corporation, government, nonprofit, profit academia. But I think
0: you're absolutely right in saying that, like, forget about entrepreneurism as it involves business specifically at this point in time, but just sort of like that entrepreneurial spirit, right? The idea to to create, to pursue an interest, to, uh, to to sort of do some self-directed learning and building and take on projects that you want. As you said, this is certainly not something that's seen in, in the standard K-12 education. As you said, you sort of have this situation where, you know, um, I'm quoting a TV show that made fun of school at one point, but basically, you know, person in front of the room says 2 plus 2, kid in the back says 4. Like, this isn't really, like, c- conducive, even just the way the desks and the structure of the actual environment is to sort of a laboratory, exploratory style of learning. This is sort of like what people are trained from a young age age uh, not to do that is to say they're trained not to explore and to self direct and to think that they are capable of solving problems but rather that they're more than anything capable of jumping through a series of hoops or answering a series of questions on a test to satisfy some external sort of you know level of Achievement, or should I say, level of a set of standards put on by somebody externally? In that case, the teacher. So all that to say, I don't want to go on a tangent myself, but I think that's actually an excellent point too, right? Is that when we look at someone at the age of twenty and think maybe it'd be great if more people like X, Y, and Z were entrepreneurial? Well, a lot of it does have to do with this education issue you just talked about. Yeah, well,
1: exactly. And um you know, I was great at what I call memorize and forget tests. Yeah, but um, <laughs> the world. Actually, getting stuff to in the real world is not memorize and forget tests. To give you a dramatically different uh, notion of education, I once worked with a great Chinese Brazilian entrepreneur. And uh, he, he and I actually created a school based in part on project based learning and agency. But um, he thought that an ideal form of education at some point would be to drop a kid off in a you know, foreign city and have them figure out a way to get back home. <laughs> And obviously, for a lot of reasons, you can't do that. But that kind of uh, how do you actually get stuff done? How do you how do you manage a situation with no structure and you just have a goal and you just got to figure it out? Um, his father had been uh, a great entrepreneur who started from nothing uh, after Mao's China. And, you know, I think there was this recognition that people who uh, create great enterprises very often figure out how to do a lot with little or nothing.
0: And that orientation is not cultivated at all in schooling. Right. I mean, fundamentally, it's a novel concept, right, to think about that. Maybe we should be teaching kids how to think for themselves, not telling them what to think, right? I think that's kind of really the split we're talking
1: about. Absolutely. And everything I do in education is designed to cultivate uh, capable autodidacts and independent thinkers.
0: And actually, let's drill into that a little further. I think this is an interesting area, too, where uh, t- towards the beginning of the conversation, you-, you talked about, I think in the first half, you mentioned you know people that would otherwise find themselves probably sympathetic with ideas of, of free speech and freedom sometimes find themselves you know, perhaps un- unwittingly in favor of policies that actually ultimately constrain people. It seems, and this is your area of expertise, in the education industry specifically, this is certainly I- exactly the case, right? I don't think you would find anyone... Let's call them just like the quote unquote, like mainstream political left in the United States, just for a second, that would say that children and people growing up are not all unique, different people that and that we should not respect their individual differences and ways of learning. I don't think you find someone that would not agree to that yet sometimes when it comes to the discussion of education and how the industry should be built. Um, you know, with the exception of a couple of fun things to do in the curriculum here and there, it seems like a lot of people are still in favor of this one size fits all to educate to quote unquote educate thousands and thousands and millions of people. there's there's gotta be obviously that room for entrepreneurs to step into the education industry. And obviously a lot of your work has proven that as well.
1: Absolutely. And and actually just just going back historically, in the 60s, you know, both Ivan Illich and John Holt um were people who Illich very strongly identified with the left and you know, Holt was you know, very much uh, culturally left. Um, and they both were very much uh, committed to freedom and education. And so there's a point in the late 60s when it looked as if, in early 70s, when it looked as if um, the political left was gonna be all about freedom and education. Um, and I would say one of the things that you know, forced that in the other direction were the teachers unions and the teachers unions became a lobby that aggressively um, advocated for their own jobs frankly and i think many people are more loyal to the teachers union and the teachers union agenda than to the liberation of children Um, it's interesting because especially now with coronavirus many people are discovering the various alternatives to conventional education. And those whose identity is associated with loyalty to teachers' unions um, feel uncomfortable with that. Uh, I would say, to sharpen the point a bit, there's a lot of evidence that just charter schools, as well as voucher programs, disproportionately help African-American children. Um, Something like 70 to 80% of African-American parents are in favor of school choice. In the last governor election of Florida DeSantis was went to victory due to Democratic typically Democratic african-american school choice moms So for somebody who identifies as a loyal Democrat, it's awkward. Democrat It's awkward that not only does freedom and education lead to greater um, liberation for all but it very very specifically um, helps african-american children and so you know, in my view, if we want to talk about systemic racism, our number one cause should be eliminating the government school monopoly as quickly as possible.
0: And, and I absolutely love that this topic and this area of conversation, but I do want to fit a couple more points in in, in what has become the, the short time we have together. So I'm going to pivot us away from that. And I, I want to, and you might hate me for throwing this sort of anvil right over Zoom in, in the last couple of minutes here as our time winds down, but I want to make sure we get it in to talk about the, the environmental discussion. Because obviously this is important. This has been important for a decade or more, everyone's talking about, uh, in, in now in more serious ways than ever, the, the discussion of the environment and the world we are ultimately going to leave our children with. Of course, some people stereotypically think that business is not the answer to uh environmental issues because they, they've been because they think that business has actually been the cause of, of so many environmental disasters or issues. But, but of course, your take is different on that. You say that entrep- this is an area again where entrepreneur entrepreneurs can make things better. Um, so. Let me just throw it right over to you. And I, again, uh, I know we could do a whole episode on this, but, but at a high level, why is this an area for entrepreneurs? Why does why will more business and and more minds in this field actually help the environment?
1: Great question. First, um, you know, I, I, this is a place where I think we just need to educate people. Uh, I don't want simply to say that um, we don't need to make legal changes, but I make a very sharp distinction between. Um, We'll call it well-designed uh, institutions that allow business solutions and poorly designed environmental regulations that stop business. Um, so if we structure the property rights in particular properly, then business can really create effective solutions. One of the best cases is uh, in many fishing um, communities. So overfishing has been recognized as a global problem. It's a tragedy, the common problem. You know, too many fishermen overfish and deplete a fishery. Uh, the solution that's now there are hundreds of different examples. Some work better than others that we're still refining how we design these individual fishing quotas, but basically the high level description of the solution is that we give uh, property rights in a fishery and we allocate property rights in a fishery to the fisher, fishermen in that community. So that if they have a certain percentage of the catch, say every year you uh, have a right to 2% of two percent of the catch in a particular fishery, then you have a financial incentive to increase the value of that catch share. So if you deplete the fishery, you're 2% and you want to sell when you're older, you want to get out of the business, your 2% of that fishery is not going to be worth very much. But if you actually are a steward, and a good steward of that fishery then your 2% of that catch will be much more valuable as you create, you help you and your other your uh, other owners of that fishery um, ensure that it's a healthy, productive fishery. So it's a very simple way to see that with the properly structured property rights, the, as it were, the incentive of financial motivation, I was gonna say greed, but I don't wanna use their word. The financial incentive goes from incentivizing overfishing to incentivizing good stewardship. And that's a very simple um, but ubiquitous kind of way to think about how to change the incentive. Sulfur dioxide um, trading in the US reduced sulfur dioxide emissions dramatically due to innovation. And the situation was there was a property rights in sulfur dioxide emissions such that um, you could trade your property right. And so if you were at say a coal power plant and you installed scrubbers and various other innovative technologies to reduce sulfur dioxide emissions coming out of your coal power plant, you could sell those then to the, say, Sierra Club, and the more effective you were at reducing pollution in your coal plant, then the more profits you'd make by selling off your um, sulfur dioxide permits. And then insofar as environmental groups purchased those permits and then took them off the market, we had a net reduction in pollution. Again, this is a way to think about how to create, use the exact same financial incentive uh, that business have to become ever more profitable, um, but flip it around from incentivizing them to pollute more to incentivizing them to pollute less. So I'm, I'm very big on educating my environmentalist friends on the fact that there are effective property rights solutions to most um, environmental problems. To go in a different direction, I'm actually a big fan of a green tax shift. Where, if you look at taxes, you know the worst taxes are those taxes on productivity. So, anytime you tax something, you get less of it. So, if we tax, say, um, labor wages, payroll tax, for instance, or if we tax uh, investment, as in capital gains or, um, you know, uh, corporate tax, we are reducing the productivity of the economy. Um, at the same time, you know, actually, my favorite environmental tax is uh, Georgia's land value tax. If you tax, um, we'll call it broadly, environmental harms, then, and it's well designed, then you can allow a reduction in tax, and should re- allow a reduction in tax on productivity, in order to increase the tax on uh, harmful activity of various sorts. Again, that gets very technical, but. The main high level message is let's change the incentives of the business environment so that business can accelerate environmental progress rather than um, be a causal factor in environmental progress. And I would say grown ups in the environmental movement, and there are many such grown ups, need to become more sophisticated on uh, the property rights uh, and green tax approaches to solving problems as opposed to command and control, top level regulation that destroys productive business activity while typically not being very effective at uh, improving the environment.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And to add that point, if I may, as well, that I think a lot of people tend to paint the picture that, uh, That when we talk about more entrepreneurial freedom, especially when it comes to the environment, that's just more freedom, quote unquote, freedom to pollute or whatever the slogan may be. Whereas in reality, someone who, in many cases, considers themselves a strict classical liberal like myself, I'm speaking now, that uh, we we must always say that, of course, this this whole idea of as back to the entrepreneurial toolkit, right, Uh, property rights, rule of law. This is a two way street. So sure, it may be that someone on the one hand has has more freedom to do x, y, and z, but if that infringes on on my property right, like let's say, or a community property rights or or their well-being like Un- unnecessary pollution or-, or damage of someone's property, this is the kind of stuff we actually want enforced. And in fact, a lot of environmental disasters and issue are because uh, large polluters and, and people that were actually doing destruction were granted exceptions by-, by governments in many cases. So I think it's, you're saying, talking to people that are very into the environment and environmentalists and-, and what have you, I think that that's a point that needs to be recognized, that a-, a lot of that two-way street of property rights is actually what hasn't been happening, and that's been causing and helping to uh, sustain a lot of the problems we've been been seeing, I think, at least.
1: Well, absolutely. And I, I think this will require um, both. I, I would say some free marketeers are overly simplistic on this point, and yes. some environmentalists are overly simplistic. Both sides need to become more sophisticated about uh, institutions. I'm a big fan of new institutional economics. And as they understand, you know, public choice problems and yeah, property rights solutions and the role of prices, then it's a matter of soberly, calmly designing uh, the legal system so that uh, entrepreneurial activity leads to environmental wins rather than environmental losses. And it's not a pro-capitalist or anti-capitalist, pro-environment, anti-environment dialogue. It's more a matter of learning how to design institutions so that we get positive outcomes. That's why I call them grown-ups. That's we get more grown-ups talking about uh, let's design the institutions properly, then we'll have more constructive dialogue and more constructive outcomes.
0: And uh the, the last point before we do our formal wrap, wrap up as our time has has wound down quite a lot here. I, I had a couple more notes but I think this one is actually a, a good one to end off on and it'll lead us to, to our ending here. Um in the book you you make what you actually call yourself sort of a paradoxical sounding claim. you address in the section called health, happiness, and well-being, uh, things like that people talk about, of course, like consumerism, materialism. Some people think that, you know, well capitalism has got to such a point right now where we have too much of this, that there's too many material goods. That there is too much of a consumerist type attitude. And you ultimately say when it comes to the entrepreneurial discussion that perhaps the problem isn't too much too much capitalism but perhaps too too little capitalism too little free markets at this point why don't we end off with that and you explain leave us with that idea and talk talk to us about how more of this can actually create more diversity and 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 actually lessen some what some people may call societal vices and things like that and i think
1: you know the, the first part to understand is that um government so many people expect either we have um you know enterprise solving a problem, government solving a problem or nonprofit solving a problem. Now, I've already talked about nonprofits, but I think what uh, my friends on the left don't understand is how systemically and chronically government makes things worse. And so, uh, you know, again, we, we talked earlier about how, I think uh, for the most part, regulations protect uh, big crony capitalist firms and eliminate uh, or reduce the success rate of, uh, upstarts who are challenging the status quo. Um, I think the government schooling system is keeping people um, poor, uneducated, and passive. Uh, Government healthcare absolutely explodes the cost while reducing the effectiveness. And so on all of these kinds of points, um, once we structure the property rights appropriately so we solve environmental problems. Then we and you know, design this win-win with, with respect to the environment. Then beyond that, um, almost everything else will be more effectively done by entrepreneurs solving problems rather than uh, a zero sum, lose-lose political battle that entrenches uh, you know, crony establishments. I certainly see the teachers union as a crony sat, uh, establishment, just as I see, say, a big finance is a crony establishment. Um, the police unions are a crony establishment. The way that government works is it tends to protect the status quo almost always. And yet if you look at the long history of uh, human human progress, human progress has unambiguously been driven for the most part by individual inventions. Uh, you know, Deirdre McCloskey brilliantly shows that I think it's uh, our lives are better than the lives of people 200 years ago by a factor of 30 or so. And she points out maybe in some countries it's more like a factor of 50, maybe in some countries only a factor of 20. Even people in the poorest countries in the world typically have better lives than did um, the average person 200 years ago. And this is why we look at the extraordinary power of innovation when allowed to take place. I personally think that um, with education We're still in the earliest days of allowing educational innovation. And over time, we will see higher quality, lower cost uh, education for all. And I've got something I called Strong's Law, which is that when allowed to do so, uh, entrepreneurial initiative always results in lower lower cost, higher quality, and more niche products. And this includes education, healthcare, community formation, governance. And something we didn't get to is the entrepreneurial creation of governance and in, um, innovative uh, zones, startup cities, charter cities. And that's beginning to happen around the world. As we allow entrepreneurs to innovate, and again, they'll fail. This is not like saying any of them are going to be great. Companies fail at a massive rate. When one needs to think of this, As an ecosystem, much like the evolutionary ecosystem of biology, where the vast majority of mutations in biology result in a failure to reproduce. But we have the extraordinary diversity in the biological world that we do because over millions and millions of years, um, nature has been free to innovate. And the more we allow innovation in governance, in law, in community, in education, in healthcare, uh, in culture, the more we'll see a radically diverse ecosystem with life uh, exploding in every direction. He um, used to write for a blog called Let a Thousand Nations Bloom. Um, it was all about, we need an ecosystem of governance innovation where we have thousands of nations, many of them which will be terrible. I'll give you one more point on that. You know, the the great uh, periods of innovation and in government have also often been when there have been many small competitive governance. Um, Periclean Athens uh, famously created a great deal, but what people don't realize, it was part of all these little uh, Greek city-states competing with each other. Renaissance Italy is renowned for its innovation and of course there were all these little city-states competing with each other. Um, In Northern uh, Europe, the Hanseatic League led to a lot of the innovation that ultimately resulted in you know Holland and then Britain becoming uh, the founders of modern prosperity and Again, lots of little city-states competing with each other. So this notion of thousands and thousands of experiments, most of which uh, fail, is absolutely essential to get order of magnitude improvements. I want the 30x improvement in the human condition that Klosky talks about with respect to material well-being to uh, be available to the poorest people on Earth with respect to culture and education and well-being and purpose and meaningful lives, as well as material comfort. We need those washing machines too. Um, But yeah, I I wanna unleash a 30X improvement in the human condition for all um, in every domain of human experience.
0: And that actually takes us right to the end of our episode. Our time is definitely wound down now. So Michael, in our formal wrap up, I always ask our guests to have the last words. So let me say, we've of course talked about a lot um, there's there's more on this topic that we can we can definitely cover an hour in an hour, but but we did touch on a lot, so let's bring it full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question today, if we can. So let me ask, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways here for someone listening to you on whether entrepreneurs can solve the world problems? If you have to leave them with one or two statements or from a from a business person to a business person what's the executive summary of our conversation today
1: that each individual who finds this direction appealing needs to learn more and talk more with other people about how to expand the extent to which they can be a positive force through entrepreneurial value creation so that we can enlarge that community ultimately to include all of humanity
0: excellent i think we'll leave it at that michael strong thank you very much for joining me on the curious task today
1: Thank you for having me. Delight to be here.
0: This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.